text for today comes from Jeremiah 6.16. This is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. All right, thanks, Katie. Well, today we're wrapping up a sermon series, which for us is a short one. It was only 20 weeks. We've done 52-week series the last handful of years. And uh, several people have asked me recently, like, oh, yeah, what was the one you preached about? You know, yada, yada, yada. And, like, I preached it. Like, once I preach it, it's gone. I no longer remember the sermon because the next week's coming. But uh, they, they were surprised to learn that we have a podcast. And so if, uh, if you'd like to go back and listen to any of these messages, the first 10, I think, were really important. 11 through 20 were a total waste of time. But those first 10, you know, uh, they're all there. You can listen on the podcast. And today we are wrapping up the series on the ancient path. We're doing it on an interesting weekend for the city of Tulsa. We're doing it on a weekend in which we commemorate the centennial of the Tulsa race massacre. Literally, to commemorate is to remember together. Last Sunday, uh, uh, Cornerstone students commemorated the Tulsa race massacre by going to First Baptist uh, Church downtown where they had this Im immersive like walk-through history and prayer room. And then I was able to go on Thursday and then kind of prayer walked in Greenwood until it, it started to rain. It's, it's really uncomfortable to lean in to the history of our city. The places that we frequent were places of violence. It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. It's, it, it makes you feel very uneasy to read about how the Tulsa Tribune 100 years ago covered the event. Uh, you know, essentially like, like uh, letting the, the white mob off the hook for things that they had done and telling the lie that black people are not of equal worth to white people. So white mobs destroyed 35 blocks of black homes and businesses and churches, 35 blocks. My gosh. It's uncomfortable and embarrassing for me, but imagine the grief and the pain and the trauma of black Tulsans. And then how not only like the story was swept under the rug, it was swept under the rug in such a way that people who live and work within miles of it, within blocks of it, have little idea what happened. And then in addition to that, so little was done to repair the harm done. The failure to name evil as evil, even though we ourselves weren't the ones who perpetrated it, is a problem. It's a problem for white folks because to, in, to, to not name as evil, name evil as evil what happened in the past, we might be blind to ways in which we're participating in those kinds of evils now. And so it's appropriate for us to own that the acts of destruction by white Tulsans and the attitudes of racial hate that motivated it were the spirit of the Antichrist. It's evil, it's wicked, it's wrong, it's antithetical to the way of Jesus. And I think especially one of the most painful parts of, of, of reading, going through the, the prayer room was seeing the things that pastors in downtown Tulsa at the time said about the massacre. It was shameful. It was painful. But we need to relive it. We need to name the evils. We need to walk through these traumas. And those pastors will, like me, someday stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have, an, have to give an account for the words that we've used, how we've stewarded our power. We need to name as wrong that which is wrong. And it's important we understand this on a personal level. Many of us, many of folks in our church have experienced meaningful trauma in life. 
And by sweeping it under the rug year after year after year, you've delayed healing and you know what it's like for those wounds to fester. You know what it's like for the, the pain to grow exponentially worse by avoidance. And when you begin to bring it out of the open and someone says to you, what that person did or said was wrong. And being able to realize you're not crazy. You're able to realize, no, it really was wrong. And accept that begins the road to healing. Failing to name and acknowledge it and see it as, he is, as it is can keep a person from going down the road of wellness. But naming the evil is really only the beginning. It leads to the work of beginning to repair it. And the necessity of repair doesn't come from like progressivist ideology. We see it firstly in the Bible and the social laws of the Old Testament. Exodus 22 if, you, you know, bar, if, if, so if your animal grazes into someone else's pasture, you pay them back with crops of your own. If you steal somebody's ox and then you sell it, you owe them five oxen. All kinds of funny, sometimes comically specific examples of ways to repair harm done, but all of it demonstrates God's desire for his people to operate in justice, to do justice. And as Tolson's, we've failed both to name and to repair the harms done. And some may say, well, that's not our fault. That's the fault of the generations that preceded us. Why do we need to worry about it at all? Well, in part, it's because our whole city is still dealing with the consequences. Do you remember what God said to Cain after Cain had killed his brother Abel? He said, your, blother, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. I think about how Tuesday, um, archaeologists are restarting looking at Oaklawn Cemetery, the, the soil, the, the God, God's desire for justice is crying out from the soil itself, and the blood of anywhere from 65 to 300 black Tolsons cries out. So it's appropriate for, for followers of Jesus to join God in crying out for justice. I don't know about you, I'm very, I'm very sensitive to uncomfortable things, usually when it's the most superficial and the most uncomfortable. So I hate romantic comedies because you know two-thirds of the way in, they're going to have some misunderstanding. I'm like, fast forward, like I don't want to see that. Or when it, when it, more seriously, when a tragic story comes on, on the news, the radio, it's like, I don't want to let that pain in. Life's hard enough. But this is one of those moments when in learning to love our neighbor well, we as people need to lean into the story of our city. And, and know what happened. To ask the Lord Jesus to wash our hearts clean and to wash our soil clean of all hatred and violence and because of you know, racial prejudice. And to help us discern in big ways and small how we might join God in the work of repair and bringing down justice for the sake of the generations to come. Now, interestingly, all of these themes, all of this conversation dovetails really well with one final dynamic of the ancient path that we're going to look at together today, and it's the stakes of the ancient path, or it's the consequences of rejecting the ancient path. Now, some of you are really smart. Well, you're all smart and lovely and beautiful, but some of you who are especially smart notice that in reading this verse, Jeremiah 6.16, all year, I've, I've omitted the final line. Even when Katie has just read it for us, we've, we've omitted every week the final line of that passage. It begins, as you've heard, if you've been around for a long time, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. But there's one more line that adds a kind of chilling effect 
that changes the whole tone of the verse if you hear it in its entirety. Walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls, but you said, we will not walk in it. The chapter begins with with Jeremiah announcing to the inhabitants of Judah that doom is upon them. He says, flee, hear the sound of the trumpet, raise the signal, because disaster is coming. The people, having ignored many, many warnings from God, like return to me, return and do justice and you can stave off this disaster. The people have avoided God's warnings and now they're going to face the consequences for their actions. Think of this in terms of the centennial that we commemorate this weekend. Violence and destruction resound in the streets of the city. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. And Jeremiah, who's given either the blessing or the curse of seeing all the whole situation from God's point of view, tells the people, like, like, is there anyone out there who's listening? Does anybody want to hear what God has to say? And he knows that there's no one out there paying attention. He says in verse 10, to whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen? Oh, their ears are closed. They can't hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. Jeremiah's lament, you know, resounds of these these biblical images. I think of Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the scoffer, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The Psalm 1 person is the opposite of what's happening in Jeremiah 6 among the people of Judah. It does sound like uh, the people that, that Paul warned young Pastor Timothy about. He said, the time's going to come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Oh, but it can't be all that bad. Maybe the pastors will listen to Jeremiah. Surely the priests will be listening. But verse 13 says, prophet and priest alike, all of them practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as if it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. And it's the next verse that begins, stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient path. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. If you're Jeremiah, it has to feel like a time in which no one believes. At least it feels like that, and his grief and anxiety is catastrophizing. It feels like no one believes anymore. Nobody actually serves God anymore. I'm the only one left. It's a time where on a massive scale, it's not only a time of deconstruction, but just open destruction. It's really interesting. It happened this week just like many other weeks. At least one or two times a week for the last several months, I may have, I'm having a conversation with someone who describes this season of life for them just like it was for Jeremiah. And they use the key word of deconstruction. So many people say that I'm deconstructing my faith right now. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what it means to believe. And what's interesting is there are remarkably consistent trends in the conversations that I'm having and in talking to other pastor friends about what deconstruction looks like and where deconstruction comes from. People seem to be having some kind of faith crisis to some degree because one or two of the following factors seem to be at play in their lives. 
One of those is that they grew up with an overly simplistic view of God, the Bible, and salvation. And having grown up with this overly simplistic view of God, the Bible, and salvation, those views were so rigid and one-dimensional that as they came of age in a world that's increasingly complex, those views could no longer bear the weight that they needed them to. And so growing up, certainly by people who were super well-intentioned and loved Jesus, but growing up they got bumper sticker explanations when what they needed was robust, intelligent, biblical, wise counsel. They were presented with certainty about things that are at best mysteries. And they were passed along, they were given this narrow, fearful, suspicious faith. And now getting out in the real world, those narrow definitions, those those bumper sticker arguments don't carry the explanatory power that they need to. These people lack a biblical worldview and framework that can, that can get the job done, that can make sense of a crazy, crazy world. And so in their frustration and discouragement and realizing that a percentage of their faith is probably something that needs to be amended, but they're not sure how much of it needs to be amended, many end up just throwing out the baby with the bathwater. I heard uh, John Mark Comer, some of you will know, is a pastor in Portland, say that, that uh, there's a phenomenon that's happening that, that he and other Portland pastors are seeing so often uh, along these lines that they've actually given a name to it. Now, how many of you grew up playing the Oregon Trail? Or how many of you just know history and know what the Oregon Trail is? <laughs> Does anyone know it apart from the computer game? Well, they're calling this phenomenon the New Oregon Trail. The New Oregon Trail is a kid from middle America grows up with a rigid or overly simplistic worldview, begins to question everything, gets in their car and moves to Portland, literally Portland. They switch over to progressive Christianity, kind of slapping Jesus on to whatever else it is that they want to believe. Uh, But this inevitably proves to be just a stopping point on the way to leaving Christianity behind altogether. So they're seeing it happen with such remarkable predictability, it's almost humorous if it didn't break your heart. And this trend that we're seeing on on a really large scale demonstrates for each of us in our own ways to learn to love God with our minds as well as our hearts and soul and strength and to show our children, to show the next generation how to do the same. Love this quote from Herbert McCabe. He said, dealing with God is trying to talk of what we cannot talk of. Trying to think of what we cannot think, which is not to say that it involves nonsense or contradiction. He's he's communicating when we're talking about God, we're dealing with a vastness beyond our imagination. We're dealing with mysteries. Now, I think as followers of Jesus, there's a lot that we can confidently say we believe and explain our belief, but we must also recognize the limits of our explanatory power. We're dealing in mysteries, glorious mysteries. In my experience, uh, in having conversations with people, deconstruction often manifests as theological and biblical questions. It's like, I have, a, I have a concern about this idea, but it's often rooted, its genesis is often found in this second factor, and it's that the faith leaders they looked up to, especially in formative years, didn't live up to their own standards. It could have been people who wear microphones on their face like me, 
who bombed big time or who had a, a, a massive disparity between the, the, the self that they projected and how they lived in their private lives. It could have been, you know, their, their parents. It could have been Christian culture writ large. And some of the time, this objection, this, this uh, disparity between how a person professes what they profess to value and how they live is tied to politics. Many, many times I've heard people say, I remember when my parents objected to the moral failures of democratic leaders. But now I see them uh, standing by Republican leaders and making excuses for those kind of behaviors. How can I explain this? Or they've seen uh, Christians that they looked up to just be really mean toward people with whom they have differences. And they just say, I don't want to be a part of that. Like beliefs aside, I don't want to be a part of a mean group of people who profess the love of Jesus, but gosh, don't show it to anybody. Some of the times it's parents, some of the times it's people like me who wear microphones on our faces, and these things, these, these, these tragedies, these moral failures happen so often that less and less we're shocked by them. It's like, Ravi Zacharias, sure. Why not? Everyone else seems to have done it. And you begin to wonder, can anyone stay faithful for the long haul? God help me to do so. And so discouraged and disappointed and disheartened by Christians behaving badly, they start to question the foundations on which their whole faith is built. And for those of us who would say, like, we're in on the local church and we're in on the way of Jesus, we should have a posture of gentleness toward people who are going through this kind of deconstruction. All of it warrants a posture of humility and repentance because these are legitimate grievances. At the same time, I also want to encourage those who have been hurt by the church to be specific in processing your own griefs. In your anxiety and woundedness, it's easy to generalize and say that all Christians are like this. All pastors are like this. All churches are like this. I like how Steve Carter, who was the interim pastor at Willow Creek, a church that went through major moral failure by their founding pastor, Steve Carter said, it's tempting to say the church hurt me. But actually, it was five people. Being precise about your questions or your hurts may help transform it into less of a scary monster and something that you can begin to address. Jeremiah sees the destruction that's happening and the greater destruction that's coming. He sees this this destruction was a pending consequence of a generation of the people of God failing to follow faithfully down the ancient path, openly saying, we will not walk in it. And the scale of the faith deconstruction that we see happening all around us is a consequence of the generations who've gone before us failing to faithfully do justly and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. To love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors ourselves. And when we reject the ancient path, we mustn't be surprised if the people who follow us give up the pilgrimage altogether. So what do we do? In in summing up this whole conversation, in, in the face of destruction and deconstruction and confusion, where do we go from here? I want to offer two encouragements today. Two encouragements. The first is to deconstruct well. To deconstruct well. What's a good and a healthy way to deconstruct your faith? Well, good deconstruction looks like taking the Bible to critique and to point out the worldliness of the church. 
That's a really worthy task. It looks like diving into the scriptures and attempting with the help of the Holy Spirit and in community to rediscover what living in the way of Jesus is meant to look like. Or rediscovering a robust, resilient understanding of God and God's world and salvation and removing or replacing those parts, those old parts of the faith that you've discovered can no longer carry the weight needed. It's like learning to go back to the Bible to critique the worldliness of the church. If you find that the foundation of your house is cracked, you call in an expert to help deal with the foundation. You don't bring in a wrecking crew right away to tear down the whole thing. So you find out what needs to be updated, what needs to be altered to greater conformity with the way of faithfulness. I think it's also really helpful to understand, perhaps especially for parents of teenagers, that deconstruction is a very normal thing. It's a very normal thing in one's faith journey. It's part of moving toward maturity. Deconstruction can simply be a sign that you're learning. It can be a way to make your faith stronger and more resilient if we don't give in to fear and anxiety about it and run from the community of faith as soon as we begin to ask our first questions, which often freaks people out. We may need to remind ourselves how all learning and growth happens in the first place. As we're growing up in our faith, whether you're a child growing up in a Christian family or you're new to the Christian faith and you're learning it, phase one is construction. And in construction, you're building your sense of what's normal and what's expected. You may be learning to study the Bible, learning to pray, learning the Sermon on the Mount, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, the Golden Rule, all of these things. You're getting a sense of, uh, of construction. As a person matures, uh, certainly as a kid hits teenage years, Everywhere in life, deconstruction starts because you've been given an idea of normal from your parents, and as you get into the wider world, you discover, huh, my normal is different than your normal. And, and teenagers naturally deconstruct, and we begin to do this as we have increasing levels of reflection in our faith, asking questions about whether our first phase of construction was aligned with God's blueprints. And so if your teenager is, is deconstructing in any number of ways, know that they're going through something that's really normal. Don't be shocked. Don't be terrified. Remind your kid. Remind yourself it's normal. And learn to deal with the anxiety that comes with watching your heart exist on the outside of you. It's a part of your kid making their faith their own. A parallel of this whole progression shows up in the classical model of education. In the classical model of education, phase one is grammar where you're being stuffed with words and rules and you're memorizing and all of it's just input, input, input. You don't need to have an opinion about it yet. You're just taking all of the information in. The second phase is logic where you're learning to make connections between how the things you've learned all work together, how the parts form a whole. And the third phase is rhetoric where you're learning to be conversant and to challenge ideas and to be able to talk about them with other people. And similarly, as I've said, we learn the grammar of our faith. As we mature, we begin to question the logic of our faith and work through it, see how it all fits together, discover places where we might have gotten it wrong. And remember, this is not bad. This is part of maturing. And so ask and explore and be unafraid. You will not stoop God. You will not ask a question that makes God feel a little bit nervous because he hasn't thought this one through before. If it's true that all truth is God's truth, he will not be surprised and, and his word can stand up to scrutiny in our best thinking. 
It's not, so it's not bad to ask questions. We construct, and as we learn and experience life, we deconstruct. But those of you who are walking through deconstruction need to know that there can be a third phase after deconstruction, a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a destination after deconstruction, which is my second encouragement to you, which is to go toward reconstruction with a remnant. Reconstruction, construction, deconstruction, but on the other side of it, there can be reconstruction with a remnant. Now, imagine that you build a house, you've lived in it for a while, and, and you get a sense uh, over time the bathroom is, is like, it's kind of due for replacing. The toilet's leaking and it runs all the time, the bath is getting kind of gross, it's, you know, hot pink tile that's been there since 1950s with a little duck tile that's etched in there, and you think, I think it's time to update the bathroom. Now, based on this issue alone, you typically don't take a wrecking ball to the entire house. Nor do you, like, demo the bathroom and then just seal it up never to use that space again. Unless you're really impulsive like me and you decide, I'm going to start demo right now and I'll definitely learn how to do it along the way. And then you give up on the project and it's, you just lost a bathroom. <laughs> you just typically don't do that. That'd be a waste. But that is what people regularly do with their faith. Walking away from the Bible, from Christian community, from, from the church, because of the failures of the Christian community to live up to the way of Jesus as presented in the Bible. What should happen instead? Well, first of all, you rebuild your bathroom. And also with God's help, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and in community, you reconstruct your faith. May determine, okay, this is... This is really important. This needs to be preserved. This we didn't get so right. This doesn't conform to, to the, the standards that God has given us in Scripture. This brick needs to be altered. We need to put in one that's a little more secure. And this just needs to be thrown away altogether. This comes from biases and prejudice and life experience that has discolored my view of the world. You don't throw it all away. You, you reconstruct with God's help. People going through what can be a very scary season of deconstruction need to know and hear the good news that reconstruction is possible. Reconstruction can follow. One author described a, a kind of renewed posture of the mind and heart that can be available to those who've gone through the tempests of destruction. Having asked many of the difficult questions and, and faced the dark night of the soul, there's the opportunity, he said, for a second naivete a second naivete, a renewed sense of idealism on the other side of having worked through the really hard questions. A new innocence, but an innocence with wisdom. The problems of the church, and there are many, the problems of the church cannot be solved with a sledgehammer and a wrecking ball. One of my favorite authors, Andy Crouch, said, the only way to change culture is to create more of it. Nature abhors a vacuum. The only way to change culture is to do something different, to create more of it. How can we begin to address the consequences of generations of Christians not following the ancient path? Well, by following it ourselves. By, with fresh resolve in community and the help of the Holy Spirit to strive to practice the way of Jesus together. In John chapter 6, Jesus says some stuff that makes people very uncomfortable, and large crowds leave him. He turns to the 12 and he says, are you going too? 
So where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Though many others decide to hit the road, this is out of, this is like in poor taste for me. I don't think this is going to be the way to go for me. We individually and together resolve to remain and to persevere in following the way of Jesus. I think we should expect that following in the way of Jesus was never a mass movement. It was never something the crowds did well together. Jesus said, you know, follow the narrow path. Few will find it. I love Yuval Levin and his book, A Time to Build, a really good book. He said, the demolition crews have for too long been allowed to define the spirit of this age, but we're, where we're headed is up to the builders and the rebuilders. And that's what each of us should seek to be. How do we get there? What's required of us as builders and rebuilders? He says, what's required of each of us is devotion. That word almost feels too pure to use in this day and age. What's required of us is devotion to the work we do with others in the service of a common aspiration. And therefore, devotion to the institutions like the local church we compose and inhabit. That kind of devotion calls for sacrifice and commitment. It calls on each of us to pledge ourselves to an institution we belong to unabashedly, without shame. To abandon ironic distance and dispassionate analysis and jump in. Even to submit to its demands on us. This kind of devotion is not only necessary, it's actually attractive just now. It's easy to be fashionable rebels. It's harder to remind ourselves why our core commitments are worthwhile. In a time when, when most churches are decreasing the demands and the expectations of those who belong to the local communities, it just might be that in our life together as the local church of Cornerstone, that in, in the spirit of building and rebuilding, we need to do the exact opposite. This isn't a time to be casual about calling one another to faithfulness to the way of Jesus. Uh, Emily and I were going to Houston area a couple years ago to go to the lake with our family, and we stopped in the small town to let the kids go to the bathroom at McDonald's. And so standing in the McDonald's parking lot, I looked next door to the local burger joint, and it said on the wall, you can find a cheaper burger, but then you've got to eat it. We've been eating the disappointing cuisine of half-hearted allegiance to Jesus for too long. And if you're tired of it, then maybe it's time to try something different. So you're disappointed and disillusioned with the local church, with people like me, with your small group, with Christian friends. Maybe you should do the exact opposite of your impulse and lean in to those relationships when everything in you is, to say, is telling you to back out. Uh, to call one another, your brothers and sisters in Christ, to grow in strength, to take seriously the way of Jesus, to, to stop waiting for others to be the ones who take responsibility and lead, but to lead yourself, the hardest thing in the world to do, to lead yourself into healthy rhythms, to quit blaming the church for infidelities and yourself learn to practice the way of faithfulness. I love how Yuval Levin in that quote said to abandon ironic distance and dispassionate analysis. Some folks have a PhD in criticizing the church. And dang, you're right a lot of the time too. 
But it's easy to criticize. That's the easiest thing to do. It's, it's easy to react. It's only slightly less easy to respond, but what's really difficult is to learn to be part of building and rebuilding. It's easy to stay at the margins. It's much harder to duke this stuff out in the real-world relationships that make up the local church. And he calls us to do this work with devotion. In the next month, I'm going to share some new ways this year our church is going to work together to challenge one another in the way of faithfulness by going down the ancient path. We don't want to be about just the, like, the, the means of discipling one another, like, hey, we're a church, we have Sunday school or groups. We want to be about the ends of discipleship, which is we're actually challenging one another to live a Sermon on the Mount kind of Christians, Fruit of the Spirit kind of Christians. As we do it, I hope that you'll hop in with devotion. I hope that you'll hop in with an eagerness of spirit, and I encourage you to pray for our church as we undertake these efforts together. Our church is far from perfect, and I am very far, as anyone who knows me well, from being a perfect pastor. I am under no illusions that our church and what we do together will usher in the American revival of the church. It's probably not going to happen. We might not even be a part of ushering in the revival of the church in Tulsa. But we might move the needle just a little bit in our life together. We might move a little bit toward the fruits of the Spirit as we lean, lean in together to God's work among us. We might get a little closer to being Sermon on the Mount kind of Christians together. And even if we just got a little bit closer, wouldn't that be great? I love how my friend Charlie said, he said, man, I just wish we could see the church be the church more often. To do it, it takes devotion. There's a lot of construction and reconstruction that needs to happen, a lot of encouragement that needs to happen. It's really hard work. You know, in some ways, I think, forgive me for mentioning Tolkien again, I can't help it. But I told somebody recently, you know, uh, Gandalf says in the, uh, in the, the Tolkien books, I'm ref- I said his name, it's nerdy to say his name in a sermon, but he says their whole plan to get rid of the ring, to, to kill this great evil, was never had much hope. It was only a fool's hope. And I feel similarly about the local church. What an unglorious enterprise. Led by people like me and like, and like you, made up of us. But this was God's plan A. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, striving together to embody the teachings of Jesus. In our weakness, God bearing his arm and showing strength. Wouldn't it be great if we just got a little bit closer to that call? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you please help us? Would you please help us? Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us for not loving you with our whole heart, for being so easily distracted for wanting to do literally anything else in the world but talk to you, to, to read the scriptures, to, to say the difficult truth to someone we love in Christ. Just in your mercy and compassion, would you pour out your Holy Spirit and generate some new life in us, some new hope to reconstruct. Fill us with fresh faith, not naive, but innocent with wisdom, that kind of faith 
enables us to trust you a little bit more, having been hurt and disappointed in the past. I pray for those in our church who are just going through a really hard time. It could be described by the word deconstruction, that you just give them grace to trust you, that you are at work even in the middle of their lives. Help them to reconstruct with hope. Pray for those today who, not related to the sermon at all, are just having a hard time in life and need to not leave today without a fresh sense of your love for them echoing in their hearts. May it be so. And God, would you help us to be among those who, in hearing your invitation to take the narrow path and the ancient path, would say, we will walk in it. We'll follow where you lead. Help us, Lord Jesus. We love you. We trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.